You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Hey man, we apologize. I I, uh, yeah, I saw your sorry. call coming in and I cut it off and I was like, who's calling me right now? I'm trying to do a podcast with Benjamin Watson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was me. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to do it the old fashioned one. Oh man. All right, here we go. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello, everybody. And Brent Leatherwood. Hello. Well, hey, guys, it's good to be back with you for another week of podcasting. This is a very special episode because, hey, we're talking to a guy who has won a Super Bowl. So it doesn't really get bigger than that for us, especially when the guy we're talking about is Benjamin Watson, who is not only, you know, a a former professional athlete played in the Super Bowl. That's kind of like the pinnacle of an athlete's career and but he's a rock solid believer. And so if you're not familiar with Benjamin Watson, we look forward to uh, sharing this conversation with you later in the show. But Lindsay, so that we can get into it, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Well, I wanted to kick off the discussion about this week with a very important video that we shared uh, at the beginning of the week in order to emphasize the value of life and all of life. So we were able to partner with a production company and share the moving story of Pearl Brown and her family. So this is the opening paragraph just describing what this video is about. Choosing life is a decision that goes beyond refusing to have an abortion. It can be easy for the church to advocate for the lives of unborn children, but forget the sometimes difficult implications for mothers and families who choose to protect the lives of their babies rather than cling to what is comfortable or normal. So this is the story of Eric and Ruth Brown, who had two children, and then their third child, Pearl, was born with significant medical needs, significant special needs, and and, um, and they chose to give her life and to take on all of the difficult implications of that. And if you have a chance, I would go on our site and search for Eric Brown's talk at one of our um, Evangelicals for Life conferences. He gave a powerful talk about Pearl's life, about their family, about how the Lord had used these hardships to bring them deep joy in Him and to witness His faithfulness. So we just wanted to put together a video that would celebrate Pearl's life, would celebrate the hard decisions that they made, um, would give people who are walking through this a place to land uh, so that they don't feel alone. And so I just would like to encourage you to go to our site to click on the link in our show notes and to to check out Eric and Ruth's story about their precious little girl, Pearl. I could not agree with that more. Uh, the Brown family, have, they have an incredible story. They're incredible people who have walked through a really, really difficult situation. And the whole time they have been just an example of what faith in God looks like in the midst of difficult circumstances. But more than that, they have been an example of what it looks like to value and honor human life, to uphold human dignity in those cases when it is really hard, when you are facing severe challenges. Uh, their daughter, Pearl, who we are so confident is now in the arms of Christ, is they honored her life and loved her. They walked through an immense number of challenges and struggles uh, as they were trying to care for Pearl. And the whole time, they they as a family, modeled what it looks like to be committed to valuing human life, to upholding human dignity, to honoring those who are made in God's image. And though Pearl has gone on to be with Jesus, uh, 
Eric and his family will live on with with these memories uh, and this legacy that they have that they loved her and and showed her the love of Christ uh, throughout all the days of her life. It is such an inspiring and incredible story, and we would really encourage you to go and check it out. Yeah, it was really our privilege to get to participate in this and get a little window into their family and their story. So again, check that out on our website. Um, check out Eric's EFL talk, and then he's also a photographer. So you might be interested in in checking that out on Instagram. He uh, has some great photos, shares his work, and it's really stellar work. So moving on, I wanted to talk about an, an interview that we did with someone that we talked about last week. So Roland Slade, a pastor in California, Capital Conversations, our podcast out of D.C., hosted an interview uh, by him discussing how churches and civic leaders can work together. Well, we actually were able to do a uh, interview article on our website this week where uh, he goes into a little bit more detail. We're able to ask questions like, um, how would you counsel church leaders to talk to their civic leaders? Tell us a little bit more about your story. What advice would you give? How has the SBC in particular been helpful to you during these times? So he was so kind to answer these questions. I think it'll really encourage you, especially if you are a pastor who is just confused during this pandemic and during these COVID times and these restrictions, uh, if you are feeling discouraged by social media, again, Roland and his church and his church members, and also the civic leaders that worked with him are um, just stellar examples of, of how to do this, and Roland and his church, how to do this to the glory of the Lord. And then finally, I wanted to talk about an article by our very own Russell Moore, president of the ERLC. We have a series that we've started, which is a primer series about Christian ethics. And Dr. Moore did the introduction article. Uh, and then after that, there will be articles highlighting various aspects of Christian ethics or various issues. And the articles will highlight a small book that can serve as a help to our readers. And so Dr. Moore actually kicked this uh, the book portion off. And his article is titled, Why Life Should Be Viewed as a Miracle, The Little Book by Wendell Berry That Reshaped My Vision of Christian Ethics. And um, it's a really good, poignant article and uh, just about the wonder that we should have regarding life, the wonder that we should have regarding uh, the universe and how the Lord holds all things together, how humans are not merely machines, uh, how the universe is not merely random. So I really appreciated his reflections here. And this is how Dr. Moore closes out his article. More than providing talking points about specific points of ethics, life as a miracle helps us to rethink our starting place. The world is not an accident. Human beings are not things. Wisdom requires affection, not just information. Life is a miracle. In that sense, this little book, like the hummingbirds on its cover, is far more important than its size. Lindsay, I'm really glad you mentioned that piece. Uh, this primer series that we're doing is really meant to be kind of an introduction to people to building a library of ethics. Uh, each, you know, this is kind of an interesting concept because we're, we're spending a little bit of time in each piece introducing whatever topic inside of Christian ethics we're dealing with. And then as we are walking through, most of the piece is about a specific book, you know, in this series. And so we're kind of recommending to people, here's how you build a basic library of Christian ethics. Get these books, read through them. Most of them are very approachable and easy to understand. And they're supposed to help you begin to have categories to think through different kinds of ethical questions that Christians are going to face. And obviously, uh, Dr. Moore is a premier 
Christian ethicist uh, in the United States, and both his kind of framing article that we released last week, as well as this uh, first article in the actual series, were they're they're fantastic and could not commend them more strongly. Yes, so pay attention. Each week, uh, we'll drop a new article about a different issue. We'll highlight a different book, and we're really excited about this series and how it can serve church leaders and just Christians uh, around the world. So uh, that's just a small sampling of what we've had going on on our site. But Brent and Josh, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks for that rundown, Lindsay and Brent. That takes us to This Week in Culture. So tell us what's going on. All right. So we begin this week in Washington, D.C., but not with the Supreme Court hearings that, uh, that we will talk about later, but in fact, something that happened late last Friday. So Baptist Press is reporting uh, a federal court ruled late last Friday, the District of Columbia has likely violated the religious freedom of Capitol Hill Baptist Church and therefore cannot prevent the Southern Baptist congregation from meeting outdoors with proper safety measures in place. And uh, listeners will recall that we've done uh, a number of content pieces at ERLC.com, and we've highlighted this uh, on the show a couple of times, uh, that Capitol Hill Baptist uh, is engaged in this dialogue with uh, the city of Washington, D.C., and so now it has uh, come to a resolution here in this courtroom. So uh, the report says the, the ruling prevents D.C. from enforcing its current pandemic rule that restricts religious gatherings to 100 people or 50% of capacity, whichever is less, whether they are held indoors or outdoors. Capitol Hill Baptist filed a lawsuit September 22nd after the D.C. government rejected its latest request for a waiver, despite the church's commitment to require social distancing and the wearing of masks outdoors. Capitol Hill Baptist expressed gratitude for the court decision. Our very own Travis Wusso, the ERLC's general counsel and our vice president for public policy, uh, stated, quote, this is a critical step in their efforts to safely and wisely meet. He described the opinion as excellent and went on to say the judge made note of both the church's theological convictions and their efforts uh, to work with the city before even pursuing litigation. And honestly, it's that it's that last part, uh, all the steps that this church has taken uh, to work within the parameters uh, of the process that was laid out by the the D.C. city government and and, uh, working to establish connections with local officials to let them know that, hey, we want to partner with y'all and we want to meet responsibly. All of that was just met with ambivalence by uh, D.C. and, And so it led to this. Uh, and uh, we are thankful for this resolution. So Josh, Lindsay, what what do y'all think about this? Honestly, Brian, I think that Capitol Hill Baptist has, for us, modeled what it looks like to try to navigate this pandemic well. When you do run into challenges that that threaten this fundamental right of religious freedom. So we think that in, in many, many places, this has not even been an issue. But for Capitol Hill, they tried. I mean, they, they were incredibly willing to try to work with their local government officials. They just encountered a significant amount of opposition, and their request was incredibly reasonable. I mean, it, it is the kind of thing that reminds me that the way that they have handled this, a lot of people who are not believers have commented on how reasonable their approach has been here and what they are asking for. Uh, they're 
the details laid out here are not, they're, they're not requesting permission to totally flout and uh, ignore all of the guidelines or safety protocols. They're simply asking to do, to practice these very same safe measures that they are practicing right now in the state of Virginia inside the district. And so this injunction granted by this judge, which said that they're very likely to win their case on the merits, was incredibly encouraging because it's just one more sign that that religious liberty is something that, because of our Constitution uh, and in the United States, we're incredibly grateful to have. Staying in Washington, so now uh, focusing on the Supreme Court hearings that took place, uh, the Associated Press is reporting health care played a starring role in Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings this week before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, As Democrats sought to highlight an issue they want voters to consider on Election Day. During this week's hearings, Barrett maintained her view that it would be inappropriate to comment on the national health care law or other cases that may come before her as justice. Several senators asked their questions while in isolation uh, via Zoom, and uh, the hearing did have uh, one lighthearted moment with technical problems, but they weren't related uh, to anyone joining online. They they actually happened because the mics in the hearing room uh, themselves, they went out uh, for an hour on Wednesday, and that prompted uh, Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham to note that the technician who fixed it, that guy needs to pay be paid a whole lot more money. <laughs> and so uh, that was certainly something that uh, they had to work around in the midst of the hearings. Ultimately, Republicans appeared undeterred and will likely be successful in their effort to have Barrett confirmed before the election, which is just three weeks away. It looks like the final confirmation vote is scheduled to take place on October 22nd. So uh, Josh, Lindsay, what what stood out for y'all about these hearings? Well, I think what maybe stood out to me was that in a year when we are, uh, I think, addicted to the roller coaster ride we've talked about before, or addicted to the bad news takes or to the outrage that's happening on social media, we didn't have really a lot to be outraged about. And also what stuck out to me was just Amy Coney Barrett and just her poise. She's just good under pressure. Um, and of course, I I like her judicial philosophy, as Josh pointed out last week, probably the second time in my life I've used that phrase. To me, she's just an, an excellent nominee for the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, Lindsay, I agree with you. Like, it was pretty stunning. At one point, uh, she was asked to hold up you know, what it was that she was referring to or what was on the piece of paper in front of her, because we've seen previous nominees come with like books and pages and pages of documents in order to refer to them. And she held up basically a blank piece of, uh, white paper. It had the Senate Judiciary Committee, I think the letterhead at the top, but it was blank. And she, for, you know, two days subjected to uh, an un known number of questions, was just able to, off the top of her head, refer back to cases and principles and policies and all kinds of things that that were just stored in her own memory. And it was no wonder for me that the longer she spent in front of the cameras, the more her approval numbers went up. People were just impressed with her because she's an impressive person. And even when she was being uh, pressed really hard about different parts of different rulings she's had in the past or different parts of her philosophy or what she might do in the future, uh, she was so poised under that pressure and was never, you know, never appeared flustered, never appeared frustrated and was 
exactly what you would hope for in, in someone who is going to have such an important job in, in helping to order our society. The other thing to mention, too, is the brief civics lesson that Ben Sass, Senator Ben Sass gave, which I started, I wasn't watching these live, and then I saw the clip, and so I, I've started watching it, and I need to go back because I don't remember my civics class, uh, So, uh, but it was great. I just love Senator Sass. Anyway, uh, you can tell he's an educator at heart, and so um, so that was a highlight as well. That's right, Lindy. Former college president, Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska, and he gave a big, a huge part of that thing you're referring to. He talked about the difference between politics and civics, and he talked about how civics is a thing that we're all supposed to be able to agree upon. Like civics is what is not contested or debatable, and politics is what we do with our disagreements and how we work those things out. And so uh, I'll try to find that and drop it in the show notes so that you can refer to it. I actually watched it with my seven-year-old, and it was really instructive and edifying. All right, so turning now to uh, the coronavirus front, and y'all, there's there's just a, a lot of news in this area, and frankly, it's uh, it's not good. Uh, so NBC News is reporting that European leaders have been put in a panic by surging coronavirus infections in the region. So, for example, France has declared a national state of health emergency, and the United Kingdom. Uh, appearing to approach a second national lockdown uh, after a surge in cases there. And Germany is introducing further rules to restrict the spread of the virus. Europe now has over 7.2 million confirmed cases of COVID-19, according to the World Health Organization. And here at home, CNN is reporting that as predicted, the U.S. is now grappling with a new coronavirus surge, one that could overwhelm hospitals, kill thousands of Americans a day by January, and leave even young survivors with long-term complications. I thought that this quote uh, in the article that we'll link to was uh, interesting. Uh, Dr. Peter Hotez, uh, who is a dean of medicine at Baylor, stated that, quote, we went down to the lowest point lately in early September around 30,000 to 35,000 new cases a day. Uh, but now we're back up to about 50,000 new cases a day, and it's going to continue to rise. He pointed out that the uh, fall and winter surge that everyone is worried about, it's, it's really now happening. And he said, quote, and it's happening especially in the northern Midwest, and the northern states are getting hit very hard. Wisconsin, Montana, the Dakotas, but it's going to be nationally soon enough. And that is uh, not good uh, for those of us uh, who have uh, obviously been dealing with this pandemic. And there was a lot of noteworthy individual high profile uh, positive cases this week to just remind us of the severity of the pandemic. Axios is reporting that First Lady Melania Trump disclosed on Wednesday uh, that uh, her and President Trump's son, uh, 14-year-old son, Baron Trump, also tested positive for COVID-19 in a statement detailing her experience with the virus. And something we can all be thankful for, Baron Trump, uh, he exhibited no symptoms and has actually since tested negative. So we are certainly thankful for that. Axios also highlighted the fact that uh, Senator Kamala Harris, uh, she's going to pause her campaign travel through Sunday after her communications director uh, tested positive for the coronavirus. 
the the outlet notes that the campaign said that the vice presidential nominee who has tested negative for the virus was quote not in close contact with the aide uh, but under CDC guidelines and out of an abundance of caution and in line with the the way that the campaign has treated the virus they will pause their travel through Sunday and then the world of college football was rocked by news that Uh, The University of Alabama's head football coach, Nick Saban, he is tested positive for COVID-19, CNN reported on Wednesday. The news comes just three days out from the Crimson Tide's critical conference showdown with the University of Georgia that is slated for Saturday. Saban said in a statement, quote, I found out earlier this afternoon that I tested positive For COVID-19, I immediately left work and isolated at home. At this time, I do not have any symptoms relative to COVID. So obviously folks are wondering what uh, what effect that will happen, or obviously folks are wondering what effect that will have on Saturday's game as as a fan of the University of Tennessee. I'm actually more interested in seeing what effect that has on next week's game when the Crimson Tide come to, to Knoxville. But we will save that for next week's podcast. That is a mouthful of coronavirus news for us. It makes me feel, I, I was starting to feel kind of like I had three heads or something because my family, we haven't gone back to church yet. Being pregnant and just different things were just a little more cautious. I'm starting to feel a little weird, kind of like an outlier. Uh, but this reminds me that it's not gone yet. I think that we've been trying to pick back up normal life as a society, and I think it's going to pull back a little bit more, um, which is going to be hard for people. But thankfully, it's not going to last forever, even though it feels like it will. Um, I think maybe we're more prepared this time. You know, we don't, we'll go out and buy all the toilet paper in the world and <laughs> won't like totally abandon grocery stores and things. We'll know how to handle ourselves. So that's good. Uh, but yeah, it just seems like we're going to be hunkering down a little bit for this cold weather and and just praying that a vaccine comes soon. So Lindsay, that's a, that's a great segue to the next portion. So the Washington Post, uh, they're reporting that pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson became the second vaccine maker to halt. Late stage trials this week as investigators probe whether a participant's undisclosed illness may be linked to the vaccine that follows Tuesday's announcement by Eli Lilly uh, that they were pausing trials of a closely watched vaccine uh, because of similar safety concerns. But experts note that the pauses of these trials of vaccines uh, actually demonstrate that safety is working as intended. So a lot of folks have been concerned about these trials being really sped up and the federal government pushing uh, all kinds of trials to to try and see if we can get to a vaccine. I actually, I agree with that. This is something that those of us who are watching the development of vaccine can really take heart in, that uh, this is the way uh, that these trials are supposed to work and pause if necessary to determine uh, whether there are any problems with the vaccine. And I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that this will give folks confidence because as Axios is reporting, according to the latest Gallup poll, Americans' willingness to get a coronavirus vaccine has dropped to 50%, which is a dramatic 11-point fall from the previous month when they tested this. So we actually need 
this boost in confidence. The decrease is due to many Americans losing confidence in the approval process for the vaccine. According to Gallup, they uh, folks won't take an FDA-approved vaccine right now because of political statements uh, attributed to President Trump and others uh, surrounding the vaccine. Since early August, young adults have been consistently more positive about taking the vaccine than middle-aged and older adults. And I thought this last point was really interesting. Parents of minors are less likely to vaccinate themselves than non-parents. Uh, so that's that's certainly very interesting. Uh, what what do y'all think? Both of uh, all three of us are parents, but Josh, Lindsay, I'm I'm particularly interested in what uh, y'all think as parents. Personally, I'm hopeful that a vaccine will come on the market that we can all have a lot of confidence in. I, I really, you know, in the same way that I'm praying for a very clear election result, I'm also praying for a vaccine to come that is not surrounded by a lot of questionable data or even, you know, subjective opinion. I, I hope that when there is a vaccine available and on the market for us, that it's going to be the kind of thing that people have a great deal of confidence in and that we can avail ourselves of. Uh, I think it's really sad to see something like this be politicized. And I really hope that uh, that these pharmaceutical companies and researchers and scientists that are working on this, I really hope that, that their focus is on uh, right where it should be, on creating a vaccine that can help people and getting it, making it available when it is ready uh, and as soon as it's ready, but not before. All right, moving over into the world of politics. And y'all, this is just a jaw-dropping number. Uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, who is the Democratic nominee for president, he announced on Twitter uh, midweek this week that his presidential campaign has raised a record $383 million in one month, in the month of September. And now you might ask, well, what was the what was the previous record? Well, that was also from Vice President Joe Biden's campaign that had raised $364 million in August. Uh, so he is in a place now where uh, he has about $430 million cash on hand for these last 20 days as, as someone who worked in politics, that is that is a sum that honestly I I couldn't even fathom having injected into uh, any campaign that that I ran here in the the final stretch run. Many folks believe that this record amount uh, is attributed to the results of the first presidential debate uh, that took place uh, last month and the the fallout from it. Uh, so they think that, Folks were driven to uh, Biden's campaign because of what they saw play out. Presidential campaigns were due to announce their totals by next Tuesday. So obviously, Vice President Biden's campaign, they, they felt very strongly about this news, and so they wanted to get it out immediately. Uh, we still don't yet know uh, what President Trump's campaign raised, but I'm sure that we will know that here in the next few days. Speaking of debates... The second presidential debate is officially off. So last week it was announced the Nonpartisan Commission on Presidential Debates confirmed that the October 15th face-off would be scrapped. The decision was made. So this is kind of the TikTok more or less. The, the committee announced that they would hold a virtual debate through you know a platform like Zoom uh, where each candidate 
uh, would be asked questions in a town hall format. President Trump uh, immediately came out and said, no, that's that's not a debate. That's not worth uh, my time to participate in. And then later, uh, Friday afternoon, when this was announced, Vice President Biden said, well, we won't participate then either, and we'll schedule our own town hall. So they they scheduled that to take place on Thursday uh, with ABC News. Well, then it came out that uh, President Trump's campaign had announced that they will uh, do a town hall uh, with NBC News right at the same time as the as the Biden town hall event. So uh, as as someone remarked on Twitter, uh, wouldn't it be just great if the networks got together, scheduled those dueling town halls to be at the same time in the same place, and then we would actually get the town hall debate that we, we had all expected? Like everything else that's happened this year, I just want to throw up my hands and scream. Um, you know, it was not surprising when we saw that they decided not to participate in a debate that was going to be held over Zoom. Frankly, I think that, that the American public would be fine. They don't have any more uh, presidential debates this year. I would like to see them debate in Nashville. That would be a cool thing. And so uh, they're dueling town halls. It'll be interesting to see which one is, you know, has more viewers. But man, yeah, I agree. I agree with whoever whoever said that, that they should just tell them to show up in the same place. I think that would have been great because look, that's effectively what they're doing. I mean, what is the difference between separate town halls and the, in the same town hall? Uh, we could just get a little more, you know, juxtaposition, but they didn't ask me. All right, returning to Baptist life, and this is something that we always want to affirm when we get the chance when when other entities are doing good work. So uh, Baptist Press is reporting that in a move that brings together New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and the North American Mission Board, uh, they are coming together to approve a partnership to launch a church planting center on the New Orleans campus. The impact of the new center will resonate well beyond New Orleans as church planters are trained and sent out to serve throughout North America. The approval of this came during a trustee meeting for the fall meeting of the New Orleans trustees, and that took place on October 13th. So uh, we are obviously uh, really keen on highlighting when our sister entities uh, do great work, and that is certainly uh, what is going on here with uh, New Orleans and NAM. And so we're thankful that they will be training up church planners because uh, we certainly need them. And finally, in sports, uh, Axios uh, was reporting this, that the Los Angeles Lakers, LeBron James and Anthony Davis, led the team to a Game 6, 106-93 triumph over the Miami Heat in Lake Buena Vista, Florida. Uh, it is the Lakers record tying 17th NBA championship. And so uh, this brings to an end uh, this very bizarre NBA season. But honestly, uh, it it probably affirms the plan that uh, the commissioner and other officials within the league developed to uh, once the season was uh, postponed because of COVID to bring the teams back together in just one place and, you know, essentially bubble them uh, so that that way it would lessen any sort of possibility of any of the players contracting COVID-19. And it seems to have worked. And uh, so we are thankful to see one of the major sports leagues uh, bring their uh, their play to a successful end. And it just brings back uh, the age-old ERLC office debate, Jordan or James? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question, Lindsay. And obviously, uh, Jordan is clearly the greatest of all time. For sure. Um, but uh, yeah, often it's the younger fans who maybe did not get to to see Jordan in real life. Uh, you know, they're they're just saying LeBron because he's admittedly he's a great player. But man, Michael Jordan, he was he was something special. And so uh, I think that uh, that that debate is really just more of. Uh, younger folks speculating on who might be the greatest player of all time. All right. So with that, Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at this week in culture. So this is a first for the ERLC podcast and something we are very excited about. We are going to talk to a former professional football player, Benjamin Watson, who played for a couple different teams during his NFL career, including the New England Patriots, with whom he won a Super Bowl. So it's exciting today to talk to a Super Bowl champ. But one of the reasons we're most excited to talk to Ben is because of the fact that he has made no secret. He has been a fantastic ambassador for the gospel, both through his NFL career and now as his career in public life. He is very outspoken on pro-life issues on issues related to fatherhood, and we are incredibly excited to talk to Ben today. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And as we're getting started with the podcast, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself? And while you're at it, would you mind telling us one thing that you think God is teaching you in this season of life? A little bit about myself. Um, Well, I am a father of of seven, and so God is always teaching me patience, Wow, which is good. You know, but I think specifically right now in this time of life, I think with... um, with so much, uh, you know, that's just different, I guess, in this year of 2020 than has been. Look, nothing surprises God. We know that. But we also know that as, as human beings, we we are affected by the things that happen around us. And uh, there's a verse in Psalm, Psalm 16:8, uh, where David writes, For he has continually, I've continually set the Lord before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And I think that verse for for me, kind of been a rallying cry or a, a motto, I think, this year, because there's so much that has shaken all of us when it comes to our health and our finances and jobs and people losing um, loved ones to COVID. And then, oh, by the way, there's a political political upheaval, all that's going on with that. Kids are at school, at, at school um, and some of them are at home. And so there's this kind of dynamic there that people aren't used to. And there's just so much that is going on. I think that's been different this year that we have all, and at least I've been, we've been shaken, um, you know, just in, in the norm. And so, you know, what God has really, I guess, been impressing upon me is the fact that, like David says in the psalm, you know, when we set our eyes on him and we set him before us and we, are, and we also put him in that place of authority, which is the, the place of the right hand, so that he directs our life and our path. It's not that we won't be affected by what goes on around us. But we will have uh, a foundation that won't shake uh, because when he is our pillar, when he is our rock, no matter what goes around us, we'll, we'll be affected. Our emotions will be caught up, but our true self and our true identity um, and our trust won't be shaken because it's rooted in him. That's such a good reminder, Ben. And I love Psalm 16. And verse 8 is a good reminder that I need to set to memory again and put into practice. So this podcast focuses on Christians and culture. And I'm about to ask you what you focus on and what you're paying attention to right now in culture, but with seven kids and a set of twins most recently, right? You and your lovely wife have. a year ago. 
I would imagine that you're like changing diapers. That's what you're focusing on and super silly songs, what me and my daughter watch on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> but I know, uh, I know you're paying attention to, to things around you and culture. So can you tell us a little bit about what's on your heart and mind right now? Um, yeah, so, so uh, a lot of that for sure. Um, you know, the twins are, you know, I have so much respect for parents of multiples. You know, we had five in a row. And and then we unfortunately had a couple of miscarriages and then we had twins. And, you know, I never knew to all the people who have, who have parented multiples. God bless you. Um, you yes. have patience beyond years because I never knew how much more difficult it was, how different it was. And so there is a lot of that. But also within that, you know, focusing on the family and, you know, as I mentioned before, the kids are all in grade school, but. You know, it's a very, very important time in our lives as we train them and teach them and spend time with them and, and be intentional with how we help them engage with culture. I think that, you know, specifically right now where we have uh, kind of a reckoning when it comes to uh, racial justice in our country, another one when we have a political season, you know, that is about to come to a, to a head uh, here in November, uh, when we have, uh, you know, the issues with our health and, and the pandemic, there's so much in culture right now that our children are aware of and that they need guidance and help with how to engage with. And so our focus uh, as, a, as a family has really been on how Kirsten and I uh, lead in that way, uh, how we foster these conversations about politics or about race or sexuality. And even, you know, even more than that, um, or maybe not more than that, but in addition to that, uh, the the issue of sanctity of life, the issue of abortion, that's come up a lot. And for us, that's been something that we've been involved with a lot um, with supporting pregnancy centers and um, with the documentary that, that we uh, put together. And, um, you know, so, so I am, even amongst everything, I am aware of what's going on. Those are the things that we're focused on, but also I think not just for myself as an adult and as a citizen of the United States, but as a parent, we're focused on these issues because they they will affect our children's lives, but also they affect our kids on an everyday level. And we as parents need to be aware of that and be open to, to listening and hearing from them, but also guiding them and always pointing them to truth, no matter what um, the culture is teaching them. That's so good, Ben. And and let's situate on the issue of life for a second. So, I mean, you you are a passionate and consistent advocate for life. I mean, I, I've gotten privileged to see that up close and personal uh, when we traveled up to your former hometown, your former residence, I guess I should say, in Baltimore and placing an ultrasound machine there. Recently, you produced this film with your beautiful bride called uh, Divided Hearts of America. And so, like, help our audience understand why is why is this issue and and human dignity overall, why is it so important to y'all? Uh, and, and why is it God is, is leading y'all uh, to continually speak in this direction? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to the second part about why God is leading us, other than I feel like, you know, everyone has a role in this to some respect, whether it's speaking out loud publicly like we do, or whether it's simply in, you know, our interpersonal conversations and just the way we live our, live our lives, it's important. Um, but God has provided several opportunities for us to engage in you know, with, with the ultrasound units, which, you know, that, that was a seed that was planted several years ago. Uh, when we had our first child, Grace, she's 11 years old now. And I remember sitting there watching the 3D, 4D ultrasound for the first time. And she yawned 
I saw her yawn on the screen. Like in utero, she yawned. And we all know that yawns are contagious. And so I yawned watching her yawn while she was in utero, which was which was crazy to me. And then we walked out of there and Kirsten says, you know, I would love to have the opportunity to provide this service uh, for other women at some point, you know, and then fast forward several years later and joining with the RLC and joining with Focus on the Family and their ultrasound program, we've been able to um, supply, um, you know, ultrasounds in different places where we've lived. And so you just never know where the seed got plants in your in your spirit, where there's going to be someone else that has that same desire and you can connect um, to do the things he has called you to do. And so, you know, for us, the re- I mean, you know, people ask a lot of times, you know, why is this this so important? I think that, first of all, as as believers, and even if you're not a believer, it still holds true. Uh, we as human beings bear the image of our creator in Genesis 2 we talked about. And so we are his image bearers. And because of that, our lives have value. And there is a, there's a distinction between our lives as human beings and the lives of the other creation. And so the sanctity of life, protecting life, um, and especially when we talk about the most vulnerable lives among us, which are lives uh, in the womb, uh, it's important all the way from conception until natural death or death period. Um, also, you know, I feel like this is a justice issue. And, you know, for me personally, I've always been concerned with things that were not just. I remember growing up and, you know, my father loved uh, Civil War history. And we talked a lot about enslavement of Africans. We talked a lot about abolition. I remember visiting, you know, different Civil War battlefields and, and always, always having this desire to to free people and, and being so appreciative, especially living right now and seeing where our country has come when when we talk specifically about um, slavery and abolition and Jim Crow and all those sorts of things that we've gone through, and just to see where we, we've come from, I feel personally that I don't want people to, to, to be subjugated or marginalized in that same way. So whether it's the young woman or young girl or young boy that is being sex trafficked, whether it is someone who is uh, dealing with poverty locally, domestically, or internationally, whether we're talking about some sort of abuse, and yes, whether we're talking about abortion. You know, I, I feel like, you know, I, I feel like I want to be involved to advocate for those who uh, may not have uh, a voice to defend themselves. Well, Ben, um, you may not know the answer to why the Lord raised you and your wife up, but we <laughs> sure are glad that he that he has raised y'all up to be an advocate in these ways, just because of y'all's faithfulness, and we know that's to God's glory, and because of how well-spoken y'all are, and just how you represent believers standing for life in such a such an amazing way. And you talking about your firstborn, the ultrasound, uh, reminded me, we have a little boy, my husband and I, on the way, due in January. Oh, congrats. Yeah, thank you. Not seven. We're nowhere near seven, though. <laughs> hey, well, well you, well, you got to start off somewhere. You got to start somewhere. <laughs> goals. Um, goals. Goals, yes. Goals. Hashtag goals. But uh, <laughs> we had our anatomy scan, and it looked like our little boy was uh, smoking cigarettes in the womb, but actually we found out it's blowing bubbles. So, <laughs> Oh, wow. But look, we have a picture of it. It's hilarious. I'm sure we'll hold that over his head. But um, it is amazing, that the technology that we have. So speaking of your family, so you were a professional football player 
And in so many ways, you modeled what it looks like to be a faithful Christian in the public eye. And I know you probably would give your wife a huge shout out here, but can you tell us how you how you tried to, how you how you sought to balance faith and your family and a professional football career? Yeah, I think that, you know, for, for, for us, it's for Kirsten and I, it's, it's the only life that we've known. And so, you know, we met, I was playing football at the University of Georgia. Uh, she was in softball and we met actually in Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And we were kind of in the friend zone for a while. Then we kind of made it official. And then, you know, we were married fit for 15 years now. We got married after my rookie year. And so, you know, our, our entire life has been, you know, moving around and, you know, game days, you know, Sundays being game days and kind of having our whole life predicated and scheduled around um, professional football. That was just, you know, that was my occupation. That's what we did. And so for us, we never really thought about it as, you know, you're on such and such a platform, whatever that is, and how do you balance faith? Because, you know, your faith is, is, is who you are. You're a new creation. And so whatever you do for your occupation, it's not a balancing that because, you bring the entirety of who you are to wherever you you go. And whether that is whether I'm working in a locker room um, and on a field or whether I'm working in an office building or whether I'm at home, the, the idea of being integral or having this sort of integrity is that you, the different parts of your lives, your life match up. And we don't do that perfectly at all, but that's that's the goal. And so, you know, just trying to be authentic. I think one of the biggest things, whether it's the NFL or uh, whether it's Microsoft or anywhere in between, people want to see authenticity. They don't really want to see perfection. And by the way, we're not going to be perfect. So so there's no point in in striving to act like you are. What people want to see is someone who um, is authentic in their walk meaning that they truly believe the things that they say and they strive to live that way. And that when they mess up, they say, you know what, I messed up and I need forgiveness. I think people really are um, are attracted to that. And in my experience and our experience, um, being in a locker room when I was a young player, and then especially becoming an older player, which, you know, in the NFL, once you get past 30, you're old, definitely in the NFL. Um, Everybody looks up to you and calls you old man. But the players and the players' wives, the players' girlfriends that we've had an opportunity to be around throughout my career, you know, the one thing we wanted them to say was that they're going to tell us the truth. We may not want to hear it because they're going to try to live by the same truth. And they're going to be honest with their failures, but they're going to encourage all of us to try to attain the same high bar. Um, and so th- that's how you, you know, live in whatever realm you're in. That's what we're called to do. That's how we're called to live. And then we're called to, you know, take advantage of opportunity. And, you know, the Lord provides more or less at different times. And as we talked about, you know, the, the film and stuff, you know, that, that was an opportunity that God presented. And it's something that we were doing while we were in the league. And that's great. And then there are times when there may not be that kind of outward expression of, of that. But whatever it is, whatever he's given you to do, wherever you are, uh, your goal is simply and your job is simply to do to do your very best to be and be um I guess responsible with a good steward of of what uh, he's given you. Okay, so Ben, this uh, this last question, man, it's a doozy. So prepare yourself. All right. <laughs> so you've mentioned your playing career, and so whether it was balling out in uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina, or at the University of Georgia, <laughs> uh, or or just in in several stops in the in the NFL, I mean, you 
you made some highlights and you also got the privilege to play with several Hall of Famers and several soon to be Hall of Famers. And that's that's where we're going for this last question. So mm-hmm. Ben Watson, you're there on the line uh, and the game is on the line. Who do you go with? Tom Brady, Drew Brees, and why? Where are we playing it? Oh, come on, man. Two-minute drill here in the, the Super Bowl. I mean, this is this is for everything. Where's the Super Bowl at? Is it outdoor or is it indoor? Oh. <laughs> so you're getting that what's specific. The, what's the, uh, what, what, what's we, the we were weather? totally unprepared for this. Yeah, I'm totally unprepared for that, man. I, I know. I know you weren't because I, you know, I know you were. That's why I threw it out there. But that's, <laughs> but that's how I address it. Because so okay, we'll we'll go honestly, we'll go if I'm if I'm playing in the if I'm playing the Super Bowl and it's you know a lot of times Super Bowls in New Orleans, even though they're not you know mm-hmm. it's not the Saints game. You know it's just if I'm playing in a dome and and you know it's a it's a shootout game, then it's Drew Brees. You know that's what he does, right? He's indoor. He's spread him out. He's you know, uh, throwing the ball left and right. You know, he's dissecting the defense. If I'm in a if I'm in a struggle and it is snowing outside, let's say the Super Bowl's in New York, like it was a few years ago, and it's cold outside. I'm I'm going with Tom Brady um, because that's what he's that's what he's done. Uh, and so there's different <laughs> there's, there's, there's different circumstances for different players. Um, I can say this. I can say that I've been um, so fortunate to play with both of those guys specifically. And as well as all the other phenomenal players that, that I've had a chance to play with. I mean, when you grow up wanting to play football, you think about playing in the Super Bowl and you think about the guys that you're going to play with. And those are the things that you walk away with, being able to play in two Super Bowls, both of them w- with Tom. We, we lost one, uh, unfortunately, that would have been amazing. We'll never forget it. Uh, but all those other times of being in the locker room, like I remember times with, with Drew Brees and his family, you know, and my family were kind of in the same you know, both when it comes to kids. And so connecting with those guys off the field has been, you know, probably more fulfilling, I would say, than even the times that we had on the field. Well, I just have to say that, see, that that's how you answer a question. And in this uh, election year, like, I, I know some presidential candidates that could take some notes <laughs> from you on how to properly <laughs> answer yeah. a question. That was fantastic. Hey, Thank but, you so but much. But they won't, they won't get any votes because it's not, you know, scintillating enough. You got to, you got to, you got to, it's a Twitter, it's a Twitter culture. You got to, you know, shoot at people. Yeah. You say that, but man, I was on the edge of my seat there. So that was great. (laughs) Man. Well, Ben Watson, we want to say thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate all the things that you shared. We're incredibly excited about the film that you guys have put together. Uh, And especially what you shared, you know, about authenticity and integrity, about living the kind of life where everything holds together. That is that is exactly the message uh, that so many of us need to hear about how to live lives with our, where our faith and our lives are totally integrated like that in a way that is authentic and real and hopefully points people to Christ. And so thank you so much for taking the time to join us, but, but for being a model of what it looks like to follow Jesus and to point toward his glory and his kingdom with your life. Thank you. I appreciate the time. And the film is actually streaming now on SalemNow.com. People can go there and check it out, uh, SalemNow.com. Um, it's, it's available for, for streaming purchase there. So we're excited about it and we appreciate the support from everyone and uh, really appreciate you guys um, you know, taking the time to allow me to join you. Thank you. So now it's time for The Lunchroom, where every week we tell you the things we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week, so tell us what's on your mind. Okay, this week I have two things. Uh, first is a new Christmas song that I found on uh, social media by 
Francesca Battistelli, which she's a Christian artist. But the funny thing is, is that our old colleague, well, not old, former colleague, Dan Darling, who used to be my boss, he's like, man, I really like this artist. I like to listen to her with my kids, Fran- Francisco Battistelli. I'm like, what is she? I'm like, monk. <laughs> so Francesca Battistelli, but she's got a new Christmas album coming out. She has this song called Behold Him, and it got me. Oh, man, I was uh, tearing up. And the story behind this song is really cool because she had it ready to go for last year for a Christmas EP, but she felt like the Lord was just stopping her from releasing it. And so they didn't release the EP either. And then, and she didn't really understand why, but knew the Lord would use it. Well, come to find out now she's releasing it this year and we are in the midst of a pandemic, a year of great loss uh, and heartache for people. And the song, the two verses are about... The first one is about a missing stocking hanging up on the fireplace because someone has died. And then the second one stanza is about a man who has lost his job and has been without a job, not knowing how the Lord is going to provide. And then the chorus says, um, in your silent night, something like this, in your silent night, behold him, something about the feel the thrill of hope. God is with us. Anyway, it's just, it's so moving. And I think it's going to minister to so many people in this season. And then the second thing is on the humorous side. So CNN had this article that was total clickbait for me and I uh, clicked on it, but it was so fun to click on. So this is about a lady who is a singer and she has a, she has a TikTok account and I think now Facebook, YouTube, and who, I don't know what else, something else anyway, but she sings and she's Indian. I think she might be Indian American, but then her real, quote unquote, real Indian dad interrupts. You don't see him, but he interrupts her songs in the background. And it is hilarious because it reminds me of our Indian neighbors that we used to live next to. So she's singing about why you got to be so rude. You know that song that where the guy's like going to the dad and saying, well, I got to be so rude. I'm going to marry the girl. And the dad, the real Indian dad, while she's singing is saying, no, you're not going to marry the girl. You're not Indian. Come back when you have a PhD. <laughs> it's just it's hilarious. You have to go and listen to these because they were cracking me up. Well, Lindsay, I just want to commend you for bringing the spiritual to the podcast. Um, a few weeks ago, my lunchroom, I shared that I've been watching through the Star Wars series. And so this is, again, nothing redemptive for you, but it is awesome. Every little boy who has ever seen Star Wars, like wants to own a lightsaber. My son, like I've bought him a couple different versions of lightsabers. Like it's a, it's a thing for, for little boys uh, who have watched and, and enjoyed Star Wars. Well, someone took that like next level and created a real lightsaber. And it's unbelievable. And so there's a YouTube video where this person, uh, the guy who created it, is just walking you through these different iterations where they were trying to figure out what would it take to, to build a real retractable lightsaber. And this thing is intent. Um, it He even made like the Darth Maul version that has like the three different lasers in it or whatever. Uh, but it is, it's a real retractable lightsaber that, you know, who would want to make one of these? Because honestly, what an incredibly dangerous thing to have a hot, laser-like object uh, that is meant to be wielded like a sword. But there is one, it's real, and you can check it out. It is pretty cool, Josh. I mean, I think every little boy and grown That's man right, would want say, a lightsaber. I don't know if that was patronizing, but it is really cool. Like, you know, uh, as a as a Star Wars fan and really no, just I as like a guy. No, I like Star Wars. There you go. So, Brent, that's it for me. What's on your mind? 
Yeah, that's going to make the Star Wars fans and our audience uh, really happy. Uh, I would be scared uh, to give my son uh, an actual lightsaber uh, just because I'm sure that he would torment his older sisters uh, with it. So the thing that caught my attention this week is a story from the Scientific American Journal that was asking, are we living in a simulation? <laughs> Which was super trippy. Yes. So, uh, you know, folks may remember uh, as as 2020 began, or maybe even before that, uh, but, but this kind of internet meme was going around that, oh, you know, we're just living in some sort of computerized uh, simulation and the computer programmers are just seeing how crazy things can get by introducing new variables. Well, that actually was the hypothesis of a scientist going back to like 2003. I didn't even realize that. And uh, the, the story says, some have tried to identify ways in which we can discern if we are actually simulated beings. Others have attempted to calculate the chance of us being virtual entities. Now, a new analysis shows that the odds that we are living in base reality, meaning an existence that is not simulated, are pretty much even. But the study also demonstrates that if humans were to ever develop the ability to simulate conscious beings, the chances would overwhelmingly tilt in favor of us, too, being virtual denizens inside someone else's computer. <laughs> so uh, I don't subscribe to this theory at all. Uh, I just thought it was it was pretty interesting to see where uh, scientists will go um, with some of their theories and the uh, extent to which they will run computer programs and equations and algorithms to determine uh, the likelihood. And basically the, the story ends with there's a 50, 50 chance uh, that we're, we're actually living inside of a computer. <laughs> well, you know, as Hey, we all, we all have a friend who thinks we could be yeah, living I in mean, an alternative kind of, reality like in the multiverse. Is that what it is? Yeah. Right. <laughs> what this person says. That's very true. You know, like as Christians, we don't really worry or have any concerns about living in a simulation or any kind of other, you know, alternate reality. But we, I can say as a person who has seen the first Men in Black movie, do you remember the end of that movie where it's like showing you the earth and then it keeps zooming out and you see like the solar system and then the entire universe. And then you're looking and then, and then you see that it's actually in, inside of a marble that's being played with by an alien because you know right. space just goes on forever and ever. And uh, it was, you know, I, I've always gone, man, like that, that's a picture of how, how small we really are. And though I don't think we're being, uh, you know, we're not inside some kind of marble that is being played with by an alien. Uh, mm. it, it does show you that the God who created everything is so much larger than than us, and we really are, you know, in a sense, insignificant specs, and we're only valuable because he says we are. Ooh. Yes. There you go. Make it spiritual. Thank you for wrapping that up on a theological high note, because uh, that is where the yep. Christian should <laughs> uh, read an amusing story like this, but ultimately come back to... Uh, we are created by a sovereign God uh, who is sovereign over everything, including computer simulations. <laughs> That's going to do it for the show this week. We want to say thanks so much, as always, for listening. And just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. 
If you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing this episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening and we will be back next week with more content. Thank mm-hmm. you.